A quick reminder before we get started. The Rational Apprentice podcast is linear rather than topical. This means that the podcast should be listened to in order, starting with episode one. This also means that skipping episodes or listening out of order will prevent you from fully understanding the concepts being presented and may cause you to miss or misconstrue vital proofs. That being said, welcome to the Rational Apprentice podcast. A few weeks ago, we discussed that in the study of the natural sciences, when given enough time, it's very possible to determine whether an idea is a right idea or a wrong idea. But we also recognize that while time is a fantastic determiner of rightness, it has a major downside. Far too many people could be hurt or killed, and far too much primary and secondary property could be destroyed or damaged, while we all sit around waiting for time to help us verify what's right. So we need something better, something not so remote. And as it turns out, we already have a fantastic tool available to us that's been utilized with great success for more than 350 years. And that is the standard of rightness used by scientists in the physical sciences. But what kind of successes have we enjoyed by using this standard of rightness? Well, think about how people lived. What would your life, say, have been like 5,000 years ago? Food was scarce, seasonal, and regional. What they grew near you was all that you had. That is, if the weather that year permitted it. The only light that you had was the sun, or if you could afford it, candlelight. You built your own house. You built your own furniture. There was no running water, certainly little or no hot water. Firewood was your only source of energy for heating and cooking, and that you had to get for yourself. Wars were constant, taxes were oppressive, crime was rampant. All transport was by foot, or if you could afford it, a horse. It was always too cold or too hot. It was always too damp or too dry, and I won't even get into the state of sanitation or toilets. But that was 5,000 years ago. What would your life have been like 350 years ago, just before Newton released his Principia? Well, after 4,650 years, food was still scarce, seasonal, and regional. The only light you had was still the sun or candlelight. You still built your own house. You still built your own furniture. There was still no running water and certainly no hot water. Firewood was still your only source of energy for heating and cooking. Wars were still constant. Taxes were still oppressive. Crime was still rampant. All transport was still by foot and horseback. It was still too cold or too hot or too damp or too dry. And again, I won't get into the state of sanitation or toilets. But as I mentioned, that was the point when the physical sciences were integrated with Newton's Principia. And the scientific method was formalized into a working standard of rightness. And look at all that we have achieved by using that standard since then. From a physics standpoint, and notwithstanding governmental interference, food is no longer scarce, seasonal or regional. Even dollar plastic toys have lights on them. Specialists build your house. Specialists build your furniture. You have hot and cold running water. Energy is abundant. We live, work, and shop in climate-controlled environments. We have sanitation, toilets, and yes, even the poorest person in America as a TV and a car. It's a big difference. Compare the life of the poorest among us today in America with even the kings 
of 350 years ago. And I think those improvements are undeniable. But the successful standard of rightness has only ever been applied to one domain of knowledge, namely the natural sciences, physics. And that has created a crisis. Socially, wars are still constant. Taxes are still oppressive and crime is still rampant. So over those 350 years, we gained the physical technologies to obliterate ourselves by this point. But there was no equivalent growth in volition to afford us the social technology to prevent it. So if we're ever going to fix the problem, the huge difference between our technical abilities and our social abilities, we're going to have to apply this standard of rightness to volition as well, to human action, so that we're finally able to determine with equal precision whether our actions are good actions or bad actions, whether our societal ideas are good societal ideas or bad societal ideas, right? It's as simple as that. So this brings me back to what we talked about last week. In order to apply this standard of rightness to the third domain of knowledge, volition, it's vital that we know what the standard is that we're applying, how it works in detail. Okay, we talked about the fact that in physics, something is determined to be right when it fulfills two thresholds simultaneously. It must be both true and it must be valid. Then we discuss the first of those two characteristics, truth. We must know not only what truth is, but also how to test for it. So, to remind you, in physics, something is true when it's observable, repeatable, and verifiable, if necessary, with the use of a non-volitional receiver. So that brings us to the second element of determining rightness, validity. And that's our subject for the day. What is validity? And what is meant by the word valid? Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we discuss solutions to humanity's problems derived from the application of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the mind of a murder case of the week. Let me give you three facts. First, the pressure of water in a closed vessel is proportional to its temperature. Second, for every force, there is an opposite and equal force. And third, modification of gear ratios produces equivalent modification of applied torque. Now, they all sound very technical, but of what use are these facts per se in and of themselves? The pressure of water in a closed vessel is proportional to its temperature. What does that sentence, or either of the other two, do for me other than to sit in my head, well, and now your head, and take up a good 25 seconds of a podcast? Well, by themselves, as bundles of words, nothing at all. It's not until I combine them, organize them into a system, that I find that I can use these facts to heat water in a vessel to create high pressure, which can then be used to push and pull a piston, which can create a torque, which can be multiplied with gears to produce a larger torque across a wheel, which, it turns out, can propel not only this entire system, 
but much, much more, all down a track to deliver goods to people that previously had no access to them. And that's what science is. The facts, the truths by themselves are simply facts. It's the organization of those facts, those truths together into a system that makes them useful. The definition of science is the totality of organized knowledge. It's the organization that makes it a science. And it's how we go about organizing that knowledge that concerns us today. But notice that in the definition of science, it simply says organized knowledge. There's nothing in there that specifies that it has to be physics or biology or geology or astronomy. It can be any domain of knowledge that is organized. And in our case, we're looking to figure out how to organize our knowledge, in other words, facts or truths, in the domain of volition, the act of choosing, willing something. So how can we determine whether combining this truth with that truth will produce a third, more complex truth that we can use to solve problems? Well, this process involves the discipline of Aristotelian logic, which is a very large subject. Okay, In fact, it's such a large subject that there's no way that I could or would even attempt to cover it all. It would take years, frankly. Okay, But here's the good news. It's simply not necessary to go into that much detail for what we're talking about here. But if you are interested in the subject, there are myriad books available, and I'm sure any number of podcasts. But the course I took, and I highly recommend, is put out by the academic agent. Now, if I remember, I will include a link to that and his other courses in the show notes for this episode. But that being said, basically Aristotelian logic organizes ideas into sets of premises and conclusions using what are called syllogisms. These syllogisms can also be visualized in a form of what are called Venn diagrams. But again, we're only going to touch on the basics of syllogisms and validity in that way, so we're not going to need the Venn diagrams. The examples I'm going to give you today are included as Venn diagrams in the Rational Apprentice substack that went out on the same day that this episode was posted, whatever day that winds up being. And if you're not subscribed to my substack, you really should be. It doesn't cost you anything for the weekly posts, and each post contains the Mind Over Murder case notes and supporting material for the podcast episodes. You can subscribe for free at therationalapprentice.substack.com. You can become a supporting member and receive additional members-only articles, materials, and full courses for kids and adults on rational and logical thinking. All right, This is great stuff for public schoolers and homeschoolers alike. All right, so without going into too much depth on Aristotelian logic and syllogisms, let's go through some basic examples so that you can get a, get a sense of what they are and how they work. Basically, a syllogism is a structure through which you form an argument using two or more premises to derive a conclusion. Okay, If the conclusion logically follows from the premises, then the argument is valid. Now, an example might be structured like this. All dogs are animals. A German shepherd is a dog. Therefore, a German shepherd is an animal. Right, so what we have here are two statements called premises. All dogs are animals, and a German shepherd is a dog. Now, what we're looking for is whether the conclusion 
indicated by the therefore statement, can be reached through logical deduction. Okay, And this is very important when checking for validity. We must assume that both premises are true. It doesn't matter whether they are or not. In order to check for validity, we have to assume that they are. So in this case, we have the statement that all dogs are animals and a German shepherd is a dog. Does it follow then that the German shepherd being a dog must also be an animal? Right? Well, indeed it does. Right? What we have here is a valid argument. Okay, let's do another one. All things containing words are books. This takeout menu contains words. Therefore, this takeout menu is a book. Okay, we have the premises, all things containing words are books, and this takeout menu contains words. So, assuming that both premises are true, is the conclusion that the takeout menu is a book a valid deduction? Again, yes it is. Hey, remember, we're not checking for truth, only for validity. If both premises are true, then the argument in this case is valid. Okay, next one. All roadworthy cars have rubber tires. This wheelbarrow has a rubber tire. Therefore, this wheelbarrow is a roadworthy car. Now, we have the premises, all roadworthy cars have rubber tires, and this wheelbarrow has a rubber tire. Now, based on these premises, does it then follow that the wheelbarrow is a roadworthy car? Well, no, in this case, it doesn't, does it? Again, assuming that both premises are true, just because all roadworthy cars have rubber tires, it does not preclude other objects from having rubber tires, right? Airplanes have rubber tires, trailers have rubber tires, remote control cars have rubber tires, and all three of those are not roadworthy cars, okay? So in this case, we have an invalid argument. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go back to the first one so that we can see if the assertion that I made last week, namely that in order for something to be right, it must be both true and valid, let's see if that assertion holds water. Again, we had our premises, all dogs are animals, and a German shepherd is a dog. Now, are all dogs animals? Is that a true premise? Well, yes, it is. I've yet to see a dog that was not an animal. Okay, what about a German shepherd is a dog? Well, we tested the German Shepherd, and it turns out that indeed he is the DNA of a dog. So now we have two true statements, verified true statements, and we already concluded that the argument was valid. Okay, what we have here is a true premise, a true premise and a valid argument. That makes it true and valid, which makes it right. And because I use such an easy example, it's equally easy for us to see that, yes, it is a right statement because a German Shepherd is an animal. Okay, the next one was all things containing words are books. And this takeout menu contains words. Okay, checking the first premise for truth is the statement all things containing words are books a true statement? Well, no, it's not, is it? A logo often contains words, but you wouldn't call an Amazon delivery truck a book, would you? nor is a silkscreen of the Declaration of Independence a book, or a tattoo with the word mom on it, 
or road sign or a school report card. All of those things contain words but are not books. So the first premise is false. What about the second premise? This takeout menu contains words. Is that true? Well, let's say we looked over the menu and found that yes, indeed, it does contain words. So that is a true statement. So what do we have here? We have a false premise and a true premise, and we already determined that the logic was valid. But is it right? No, it's not right because we have a false premise. All right, next one. All roadworthy cars have rubber tires. And this wheelbarrow has a rubber tire. Okay, checking for truth, we have a true statement in that all roadworthy cars have rubber tires. And we have another true statement in that this wheelbarrow has a rubber tire. Not all wheelbarrows do, but let's assume that this one does. So that's two true premises. But was the logic valid? No, it wasn't. So is it right? No, it's not. Okay, let's do one more. And this one's kind of interesting. Premise one is all Spaniards were and are scientists. Premise two is Galileo was a Spaniard. And our conclusion is, therefore, Galileo was a scientist. Okay, let's check for validity first. Assuming that all Spaniards were and are scientists is true, and Galileo was a Spaniard is true, does it then follow that Galileo was a scientist? Well, it sure does. That's a valid argument. If those two are true, that's a valid argument. But let's check if those two are true. Is the premise, all Spaniards were and are scientists, a true statement? No, of course not. Spanish people have all kinds of jobs, right? What about the premise that Galileo was a Spaniard? Well, that's not true either. He was Italian. So what we have here is a false premise followed by a false premise. And as we already determined, the logic is valid. But here's what's wild about this one. The conclusion is correct, isn't it? Galileo was a scientist. But it's not right. right. The logic is valid and the conclusion is correct, but the deduction is not right. When all the premises are true and the thought process is valid, then and only then will the conclusion be right. See, unfortunately... Most people are sloppy or don't understand what they're talking about when they use these words, okay? They use the words true, valid, and right synonymously, which is a major intellectual blunder. Each of those words is a totally different concept with very specific, unique meanings. So again, if all the premises are true, that is observable, repeatable, and verifiable, and the thought process is valid, then and only then will the conclusion be right? Okay, so now that we fully understand the standard of what is right in the domain of physics, it's now time to begin discussing whether that standard of rightness can be applied to the domain of volition. We can clearly see from our successes and accomplishments that this combination of truth and validity has worked very well in physics. But does that mean that it will work well in volition? Well, up to very recently, it's always been considered to be a non-starter, an absolutely impossible task. After all, physics and volition are so very different. Okay, so we're going to need to know what is different about them in order to determine whether the same standard of rightness can be applied to both. And that's the topic that we will embark upon in the next episode of the Rational Apprentice podcast. Mind Over Murder is next up. 
Okay, once again and all summer long, we have two Mind Over Murder cases. The additional mysteries and puzzles are for the under-13s as part of the Mind Over Murder Kids Summer Series, where we emphasize rational and critical thinking skills, evidence-based argumentation, and logical fallacies. All right, so let's move right into our first case. This one's for the adults, entitled The Blackmailer. All right, now this story is kind of long, but the narrative hides a number of little clues that allow us to essentially eliminate certain people from our list of four potential suspects. And we might as well go through them in the order in which our intrepid Inspector Bob Clover interviewed them. The first was Martin Amberton, uh, Linda Amberton's husband. Now, this was quite a long interview, and it gave us a lot of pretty good information. But the most notable facts, in my opinion, are these. Martin Amberton knew that his wife Linda didn't know how to drive. Okay, when the second blackmail letter instructed Linda to drive a considerable distance to deliver the money, it was Martin who called the police and shared the contents of the letter with the inspector without Linda's knowledge. He also volunteered to drive Linda to the drop point. So if Martin is the blackmailer, he's certainly making things difficult for himself. It's as though he's like informing on himself. So... I don't know, unless he's got a very cunning plan, I really don't see Martin as the blackmailer here. All right. Next, we had old Doc Sage. What I found very telling about Dr. Sage was that he recounted in some detail the fact that he never knew the particulars of Linda's past. In other words, he didn't know anything about the shoplifting. Right? If you remember from the story, Dr. Sage hired Linda at the request of his longtime friend, Judge Thornton who wasn't specific about her crime. In fact, he said uh, that it was nothing that a good job and three square meals a day wouldn't fix. So despite the fact that Bernie made off with his retirement money and funds are tight for old Doc Sage, if he didn't know anything about the shoplifting, he really wouldn't have anything to blackmail her with, would he? So I don't think it's old Doc Sage. Mary Devers was the next one to be interviewed, and she brings up some interesting points. She knew all about Linda's shoplifting conviction, even though she wasn't around 20 years ago when all that went down. Apparently, the woman who had the job back then had a big mouth and told Mary Devers, her replacement, all about it. The file had been sealed since with the original seal, so there was no other way for Miss Devers to have found out about it which really would have been a solid defense for her had she not offered the information to the inspector. So perhaps the original court clerk was not the only one with a big mouth. Right? Her attitude toward Linda was telling as well in that she thought that Linda had charmed or duped the judge to get off that easy. Right? So I'm not, I'm not seeing anything here that allows me to rule her out at all. All right, so we'll have to come back to her. Okay, last we have Susan Royster, who knew the details of the shoplifting conviction and also needed money. But like the husband, she knew that Linda couldn't drive. Were Susan Royster the blackmailer, would she have given the instruction telling Linda to drive all that distance to drive to, to, to drop off the money? I mean, I, I, I really doubt it. It just wouldn't make sense. So of those four suspects, the only one that really stands out to me as a plausible option is Mary Devers. Right? The other three 
either exhibited behaviors that were totally counter to pulling off a blackmail or had facts behind them that gave them, at the very least, plausible deniability. All right. Mary Devers had none of those things working in her favor. So that's who I'm going to go with. If you have something different in mind, though, I'd love to get your arguments in the comments. But right now, it's time for the Mind Over Murder Kids Case of the Week. And this one is entitled The Break-In, which is not the most compelling of titles, but it is descriptive. I'll give it that. Okay, the story is Sam Cantor's home was robbed and everything of value was stolen. There are two suspects, Michael Cantor, who is Sam's son, and who is living in his father's home. And next we have George Fontaine, who's a known thief, who was recently spotted in the area of the robbery. Now, using the clues, it's our job to figure out who robbed Sam Cantor's house. So let's go through each of the clues and see what we can find out, keeping in mind that we have to assume that each of the clues is true. Okay, for example, with the first clue, Sam Cantor, a successful businessman, was away on a business trip when the robbery occurred. Okay, we have to assume that that's a true statement. And because it's a true statement, we now know that it would be impossible for Sam Cantor to have robbed his own house. Right? Does that make sense? Right? I mean, if he's away on a business trip, he can't also be where the house is robbing it. Okay? Okay. Next one. Sam's son, Michael, is the only other person living in Sam's home. Okay, well, we knew that the son lived at the house, too. Okay, we learned that from the story. But now we know that those are the only two people living in the house. There's no mother, there's no uh, maid, there's no live-in housekeeper. But we also know something else now, too, don't we? If Sam, the father, okay, was away on a business trip, as the first clue said, then that means that Michael, the son, was alone in the house during the time of the robbery right? It doesn't prove anything, but it, it gives, it's something to sit in your head and gives a picture of what's happening here. All right, next clue. Michael has large gambling debts, and although he's allowed to live in the home at no cost, his father doesn't give him any money. Okay, this gives Michael motive for the robbery, doesn't it? First, his father is away, and there's no one else there. And second, Michael needs money to pay off his debts. Well, not only does it give him motive, it gives him opportunity too. Okay, next one. The police found one of the back door window panes broken. Okay, well, all right, that's a bit odd. I mean, if Michael lives in the house, he'd have a key. Wait, 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 wait. Let's say this like good old Tolman would want it. Generally, when someone lives in a house... They also have a key to the doors of that house and would therefore not need to break a window to get in, right? All right, but let's say that the son, Michael, did rob the place for the money. Now, if there were no signs that someone broke into the house, he'd be the first person that they would suspect, precisely because he had a key. So maybe Michael broke the window pane on purpose to make it look like someone broke in. Maybe. All right, next one. All right, although the home has a security system, no alarms went off that day. Okay, well, what is this actually telling us? We don't know what time the robbery took place. Nowhere in the story does it tell us that. 
And we don't get anything from the clues uh, of on the time of the robbery, at least not yet. So we don't know if it was day or night, and we don't know if the son Michael was there at the house at the time, right? Did it happen in the middle of the night and Michael was in bed sleeping, or did it happen during the day and Michael was out of the house, maybe at work or at the store or something? So sure, the house has an alarm system, but was it on or off? We have no way to know from the story. If it was on, then we have to assume that the son Michael was not at home or else he would trigger it by just moving around the house. And if it was off, he could either be at home or he left the house without turning it on, right? Which could have been done by accident or it could have been done on purpose. I don't know. There are a lot of possibilities here, but there's no way for us to prove any of them because we don't have enough information yet. Okay, so let's keep going. Next one, George Fontaine, the new guy, right? The thief. George Fontaine arrived in Greenwich on the same day that Sam left. He also had a ticket to leave town on the day after the robbery. Well, that's certainly a coincidence, isn't it? A known thief comes to town the same day as Sam, the owner of the house, leaves town, and he has a ticket to leave the town on the day after the robbery. It is a coincidence. But is it anything more than a coincidence? Does it tell us anything that we can actually use as evidence? Well, I don't know. I don't think it does. You may have heard the phrase, correlation does not equal causation. Well, basically what that means is just because two things happen together, it doesn't necessarily follow that one of those things caused the other. For example, if I were to say, eating ice cream makes people fight. I could even hand you a graph that showed that when people eat more ice cream, the number of fights also increases. But does this mean that eating ice cream is the cause of the fighting? Or could it be that when it gets hotter in the summer, people eat more ice cream? And when it gets hotter in the summer, tempers flare because of the heat and people have more fights. So what we're looking at are two completely separate effects from a totally third cause, the hot weather. So getting back to our clue here, yeah, we have a coincidence, but without further evidence, I don't think we can make anything more of it. All right, so next clue. George refused to tell the police why he came to Greenwich. Well, okay. I guess people would generally consider that suspicious. I don't happen to for my own reasons, but again, by itself, correlation does not equal causation. Just because Fontaine didn't want to divulge why he came to town does not mean necessarily that he came to rob Sam's house. He could have come for the yearly basket weaving competition for all we know, and maybe he was just too embarrassed to tell the police. Right? I don't know. Maybe this will be useful later on if we continue with the clues. So let's keep going. All right. The next one is because of his careful planning and skill in disabling security systems, George had never been caught in the act of robbery. Ah, okay. All right. So what, what we have here is a small mountain of facts about George that in isolation, in other words, each fact by itself doesn't mean all that much. But when you group them all together, 
they start to have much more weight, don't they? I mean, we're really starting to get a picture of this George guy. A known thief in town for the exact dates around the robbery. A known thief refusing to say why he's in town. And a known thief who happens to be particularly good at disabling security systems. Something that was a distinct possibility in our case. I don't know. Can we deduce with certainty that because all these facts uh, that we have about George Fartain are true, that that absolutely means that he's the robber? Well, no, not with certainty. But we can certainly infer that he's the robber. One coincidence is fine, even two. But once you start to have three coincidences happening involving somebody with a history of theft, well, I start to smell a rat. I don't know. What do you think? All right, last clue. When the police questioned him, Michael, he's the son, Michael said, look at all that broken glass out here on the lawn. I mean, I live here. Why would I have to break the door open when I could just open it with the key? Well, okay, we talked about that. Michael has a point here, doesn't he? I mean, why would he break through the door when he has a key? Unless Michael wanted to make it look as though there was a break-in. We talked about this before, remember? If Michael wanted to direct suspicion away from himself, he would have to make it look like someone else broke in. But there's one more tiny clue in here. Where are the glass shards? Well, they're on the lawn, right? And if George Fontaine was going to break in through the window door, he'd have to do it from the outside, obviously. And so he'd hit that glass with something causing the broken glass to fall. Where? Well, it would fall into the house. The shattered glass should have been inside the house on the floor, not outside the house on the grass. The only way that the glass could have ended up outside the house on the grass would be if someone from the inside of the house hit the glass. But who would do that? Well, Michael, the son, who was the only other person there and the only other person in the house. I think... We were right in thinking that Michael would have to find a way to make it look like someone else did the robbery instead of him. So while we do have a mountain of circumstantial evidence inferring that it was Fontaine, the direct evidence shows that it was much more likely to be Michael who was the robber. Unless, of course, they were working together. But <laughs> I'll let you think about that. Everybody, that will do it for today. That reminds you that in order to get the weekly Mind Over Murder case notes, you'll need to go on over to the website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And don't forget that all summer long, we're adding a second Mind Over Murder puzzle for the kids as a part of our Mind Over Murder summer series. Now, in addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, courses, and bonus materials coming in the near future. So head on over to therationalapprentice.com slash subscribe to sign up for free right now. All right, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>